Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. I'm Rob Fay in Beaverton, Oregon, and we are joined as usual by Roman Sivkin in New York and our sound engineer across the Willamette River, uh, Mr. Heston Hoffman. And we're also really pleased uh, to welcome a guest. We have a special guest today, uh, and his name is Dr. Pancho Savory, and he is a professor of English and Humanities at uh, Reed College here in Portland, Oregon. Um, And he uh, is focused on African-American literature, um, American literature and cultural history, modern and contemporary drama, poetry and fiction, creative writing, in American Indian fiction, um, as well as the Beats, we know that uh, uh, professor that you, you you teach a course in the Beats, and I think we'll have to uh, ask you a little bit about that today, since that's a uh, an important group of writers for Rome and I. But um, professor, I, I I wanted to start by you know we had spoken a little bit um, the three of us on a phone call, and um, I was talking about um, I think Americans, particularly white Americans, are are trying to catch up, uh, certainly to what African Americans have known forever. Um, and in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, um, you see uh, on social media lots of recommendations for for documentaries addressing the history of racism, slavery, Jim Crow, etc. Um, a lot of important books um, uh, are being uh, discussed and shared. Um, you know, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander is a book that that comes to mind, really important books that help to understand how we got to this moment. Um, and, you know, I've been I've always turned to literature uh, when I want to understand things. And so and by literature, I guess what I mean is uh, that could be nonfiction, but books that aspire to a certain kind of artistry, whether it's, you know, verse, fiction nonfiction. And so I guess I expected to see more of the books that I was introduced to years ago um, at UMass Boston, which which uh, in the early 90s, I was a student and you were a professor there. Uh, we didn't know each other, but um, I was introduced to books that had a huge impact on me. I, I Until that point, I was 18, 19. I didn't know much about Zora Neale Hurston or Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison, Toni Morrison, Harry Peter Stowe. And so I haven't personally seen a lot of those books coming up in the discussions or the recommendations. And I had mentioned that to you. And you said to me, um, we have to think about audience of whom these books were written for. And so I think if if our umbrella topic for discussion might be something along the lines, you know, what place uh, is there of African-American literature at a time of mass protest in racial injustice, I, I think that might be a place to start. S- who is the audience for for many of these books? How, how did the writers think about that? So I guess I would start by saying that uh, I, too, have gotten all kinds of lists over the computer about books to read, uh, resources to check out, organizations to give money to. And I have been a little bit surprised at the fact that most of the reading lists are nonfiction books. Mm -hmm. But then I started thinking about that, and it made me think about the topic of audience. Mm -hmm. And the thought came to me, I don't know how, you know, universal this is, but a lot of nonfiction books, I think, are addressed primarily to a white audience to mm-hmm. let, to let that white audience know uh, and understand what it's like to be black so one of the books you mentioned was uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow um, mm. it's like it's like the the slogan black lives matter no black mm-hmm. people don't need to be told that black lives matter black people mm-hmm. have, have always known that so it is a message to white people to wake mm. up pay attention to the fact that black lives matter. Mm-hmm. And I think the same has been true with a lot of nonfiction books written by African-American writers. On the other hand, I think that a lot of fiction is not um, dedicated primarily to a white audience. Mm. Um, so 
I have thought about several texts I could possibly talk about. You mentioned Their Eyes Were Watching God. Yeah. Uh, which I think is a great book, and I have taught it often. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about Their Eyes Were Watching God is that it is a book in which there are hardly any white characters. And it takes place in an all-black town in Florida. And so the message that the text is giving, I think, is primarily a message to black readers. So um, one of the things that happens in the novel is that the main character, Janie, goes off and has all these experiences. And then she comes back to her hometown and she's telling the story of what has happened to her to her best friend, Phoebe. And at the end of the novel, after Janie has finished telling her story, Phoebe says, I didn't grow 10 feet higher from just listening to you. And I think that that emphasizes the importance of storytelling, of friendship, of the use of language. And I, th and I think that those are all messages that need to go out to black folks. Mm -hmm. The importance of friendship, the importance of storytelling, the importance of gathering together and hearing and telling each other their stories. Um, another example of that, I would say, is um, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Yep. Um, at the very end of the novel, um, the main character has been struggling for 500 pages to figure out the meaning of his grandfather's last words. And at the end of the novel, he finally figures it out. And he says, uh, the narrator says, was it that we of all, we most of all, had to affirm the principle, the plan in whose name we had been brutalized and sacrificed, not because we would always be weak, nor because we were afraid or opportunistic, but because we were older than they in the sense of what it took to live in the world with others. And because they had exhausted in us some, not much, but some of the human greed and smallness, yes, and the fear and superstition that had kept them running. So mm. what I find really interesting about that passage is the pronouns, the mm. we and the us. Mm. And I think that what Ellison is saying there is that we, black people in the United States, because we have undergone the various forms of suffering that we have undergone, that has given us a certain kind of wisdom. Uh, mm -hmm. It's also what uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talked about in The Souls of Black Folk when he talked about uh, black people having this uh, double vision. Um, mm -hmm being able to see things from multiple perspectives. So I think what Ellison is saying is that we black people have some wisdom and some understanding of how the universe works and mm. that we have a certain degree of responsibility to offer that wisdom to white people in order for mm. them to get it. Um, I was also yeah. thinking of the, the title of an album by the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And mm -hmm. the title of the album is Message to Our Folk. Mm. And I think that's what uh, a lot of African-American literature is doing. I also recently watched uh, Black Panther. Mm. And, and it seems to me it has a similar message to what um, Ellison is talking about. Mm -hmm. Because in Wakanda... Mm the black folks have the wisdom and understanding of how to make the world a better place. Mm. And they have to make the decision to share that knowledge with the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, go yeah. Ahead. Yeah. No, that, that it, it reminds me of something um, uh, of D Dr. Cornell West um, has said something similar in that, you know, one of the, the, the geniuses of the African-American experience is 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 taking the suffering that was imposed upon them, dumped on them, and yet overcoming it with 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 art and with music and with literature, and and as you suggested, kind of um, actually showing and exemplifying some of the ideals that are espoused by the United States, but but often not practiced. Um, 
and and so there is almost like it, I think as you're suggesting a kind of um, uh, a teaching element that is available, although although you say these books are primarily they were primarily written for African Americans for reminders for solace for for survival. I mean, is that I would 100% agree with that. Yeah. Um, another great example of that, I think, is Toni Morrison's Beloved. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a passage in the middle of the book in which the, uh, the character Baby Suggs gives this sermon out in the woods to black folks. And she says, uh, let's find the passage. Here she said, in this place we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in the grass, love it, love it hard. Yonder, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. They don't love your eyes. They just as soon pick them out. No more do they love the skin on your back. Yonder, they flay it. And oh, my people, they do not love your hands. Those they only use, tie, bind, chop off, and leave empty. Love your hands. Love them. And so the importance of loving your own body mm-hmm. as a black person, despite the way that it has been um, despised in various ways by the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to throw in another idea, um, another layer here to this conversation. So I came across an essay um which I guess at the time was was that uh, created a lot of conversation. It was by a, a professor named Kenneth Warren, and he wrote an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education with the title, Does African American Literature Exist? And his basic argument was that the, the, the so-called the classic books, if we were to call them that, were, um, were primarily a product of of the Jim Crow era in segregation, and they were they were prospective literature. They they were looking to a time when when there wouldn't be this you know systematic codified um, oppression, and that it pro- they were providing solace to the black community as we're talking about, but that we now live in a a, a post. African-American literature world and that we should certainly we should study African-American literature. We should we should teach it. We should uh, write analysis of it. But but his his interesting point was that it's not possible to write an African-American book today. So Colson Whitehead is writing American books uh, because we, we although as we all know, systematic racism is is front and center. Warren was arguing that the the special period, the special awful period of Jim Crow, uh, was was linked to this literature. And I, I wonder what what your thoughts are on on that that line of thought. Funny you should mention it because yeah. I I taught an entire course based on his book. Okay, yeah. <laughs> And I 100% disagree. Mm. Um, uh, So as you said, his basic point is that after the civil rights movement ended, that African-American literature ended. Mm. And uh, so what I did in the course was that I taught some African-American texts from the early part of the 20th century up until his supposed end moment. And then I taught several books written after his end moment. And the basic question that the class was grappling with was, is there a significant difference? And the answer was overwhelmingly no. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I, I very much agree with the premise of Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow in that um, it has always benefited white people to keep black people in some form of slavery. 
And first we had real slavery. And then when that ended, they had to come up with something else. So they came up with Jim Crow. And then when Jim Crow ended, they had to come up with something else. And they came up with mass incarceration. And so it seems to me that even though the the names change, the game is still basically the same. Yeah. And so I think that um, African-American literature will always reflect that um, situation that black people find themselves in. And it doesn't matter whether you call it slavery or Jim Crow or mass incarceration. It's all a form of the same thing. Mm. Yeah. And I, I, I if I recall um, at the end of that book, I think Alexander kind of speculates about, you know, what might be the next systematic um, control mechanism. And I think she hints at uh, ankle bracelets, home arrest, um, you know, where, oh, you know, look, we've done away with with, uh, you know, physical mass incarceration. We've 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 gone we've evolved beyond that, you know, and but but we'll still be policing black people and and, uh, uh, removing them right from from active participation. Maybe it's house arrest. I I don't know. But I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's proven to be, um, you know, incredibly flexible and uh, adaptable, you know, uh, over over the years, and and so I mean, that's the 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 stunning part about this moment right right here, where you know, where where does it go? I, I was reading an article in the Guardian, um, uh, a journalist called Colson Whitehead, and was just saying, you know, what are your thoughts about everything that's going on? And he was he was quite pessimistic. Um, that the momentum could continue to to maintain the pressure um, on the institutions, on the politicians. Um, so I, I, you know, I have no crystal ball. Um, yeah, I'm. I am also somewhat skeptical about yeah. it. Um, yes, the the death of George Floyd was a horrible thing, but you know, this is one of hundreds of thousands. Mm. And why is this moment particularly different from other moments? And I'm happy to see lots of white people out in marches. Um, But um, marching and putting a Black Lives Matter sign on your front lawn, Mm. those those are easy things to do. And, you know, I want to see some real change. And real change is going to mean that white people are going to have to change the way they've been living, seeing, existing. And I, I wonder how much of a desire there is because, you know, when people have privilege, they enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and again, this is why I think that it's more important for black people to take an inward look mm-hmm. and to remember um, remember the message from these various writers. You know, another yeah. another writer I want to mention was August Wilson. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things, several of the things that he talks about are the importance of preserving the past, the importance of honoring elders, uh, and the importance uh, overall of black music mm-hmm. and how black music is not just music. It's not just a form of entertainment. Black music is a form of philosophy. It is a form of politics, it is a form of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to keep embracing that. Yeah, I, 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 that must resonate with you, Roman. I, I know yes. that... Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> to, to connect it to something, you know, uh, very current, I, I, I saw on Twitter that you shared um, that a, a new recording of Thelonious yes. Monk uh, yeah. was discovered. He, towards the end of his life, when he was somewhat, um, uh, I guess, I don't, I don't know if you could ignore Thelonious Monk, but uh, maybe you can tell the story, Roman. Yeah, it was, um, it was late 60s, 1968. That, that's when jazz in general was kind of you know, losing major ground to rock and roll, and it was kind of on the decline. The 70s was really a horrible decade for, for jazz, and uh, Thelonious himself actually um, really had some mental problems there during that decade and, and really did not perform. But in 1968, uh, when he was on the West Coast, he was asked to uh, – 
come to this high school and perform. And uh, I haven't heard. I just heard one track so far. It's coming out on Ju July 31st. And yeah, apparently also at Palo Alto High. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. High. That's right. That's right. And apparently Monk was in a great mood. Uh, the, the set has a great energy. Um, Charlie Rouse is at his best. So he's the saxophonist. So I'm really, really looking forward to um, to to hearing this. And in general, th not just Thelonious Monk, but mainly Thelonious Monk has been sort of my obsession since my my mid-teens when I first discovered him. And I, I I tell people kind of jokingly, but really it's kind of serious. I I worship. Uh, you you mentioned religion, you know, um, Pancho, and I, I worship Thelonious Monk. He's a bit of a god to me. Um, I have no problem with that. You know, <laughs> as I'm sure you are aware, his nickname was the High Priest of Bob. The high Priest of Bob. Oh, wow. That's right. That's so, right. So to think of him in a religious context totally makes sense. I love, love, love Thelonious. Cannot yeah. enough. Yeah, in fact, when Percival Everett wrote a book with a character named Thelonious, I, I wrote to, to uh, Mr. Everett saying, thank you so much. <laughs> you had me at Thelonious. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So yeah, so I, you know, and as, as as a somewhat of an outsider, I am an American. I'm an, I was naturalized in the early '90s. I came here in 1984 as a, as a teen, and I tell you, I, I, as, as this country is wonderful. It's got it really kind of. I was really looking forward to coming to America, but when I was living in Israel, this was before the first uh, Ethiopian sort of migration to Israel. So there were no 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 black people in Israel. I, at least I didn't see it. At least until about a month or two before I left. And I remember coming across an Ethiopian person. He was very nice. He t we talked to, uh, to him a little bit, but I was just, it was my first sighting of a, of a black person. And I, I just thought this was a beautiful person, you know? So when I came here and I discovered that this was somehow uh, viewed negatively here, I mean, you really felt it in the eighties. Uh, there was, you know, when I used to come to New York, I, I came to Boston first and I would come visit New York, visit some friends here. And I just saw how segregated it was and how this was a good neighborhood. This was supposedly a black, you know, bad neighborhood. Don't go there. It was all out in the open and just so disgusting to me. I just could not understand it because to me, people are just people, you know, again, as an outsider, it really felt like I was coming into this strange country that had these really bizarre ideas about people. It did not make sense to me. Uh, but what I wanted to... So to tie it back to what you guys were talking about before, I have this quote from um, another person that I, I really respect, Bucky Fuller, Buckminster Fuller. Um, and it's probably a quote you've seen around. It's kind of a, a, a blah quote, meaning it's not, it's not, it doesn't tell us anything new, but it made me think about what we're talking about today and about African-American literature and what is it going to give us in the future um, and here's the quote, you never change things by fighting against the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the old model obsolete. Um, now, it's a, you know, obviously, it's a kind of a bland quote, duh, you know, of course, but it does make you think about, you know, when we sort of narrow the focus down to um, what's happening uh, with, you know, the whole tension in this country that's been ongoing for hundreds of years, and it's unrelenting. How, how do we how do we come up with this new model? And and this is this new model has does it come from all of us as Americans? Does it come from the African American community? Where does this model come from? What what does it begin to look like? Do we have any kind of idea of any kind of um, sort of a, a vague outline of this new model that sort of puts the old model away? We need to put the old model away. It's been with us for too long in one form or another, as you guys were talking about, it keeps shifting and, and changing form with this kind of oppression always being on top. But you know, the demographics are changing in this country. Whites are not, no longer a, minor, a majority, at least will be a minority very shortly. Um, things are definitely changing, but we need some sort of conceptual model that is not just saying, you know, this model sucks, but actually presents us with something that we can start building a new model that would make the old one obsolete. Is there, is there any kind of um, any kind of outlines of this model that, that we're able to sort of see right now? That was a very complicated question. <laughs> Sorry about that. So first I want to say I grew up in New York City. And um, I had a wonderful experience growing up in New York. And I actually um, 
Although you could say that there were segregated areas of New York, I did not feel that there wasn't any place in New York that I could go to as a kid. When I was uh, eight years old, nine years old, my mother said to me, there's the subway, learn how to use it, and you can go anywhere. And I did, and it was totally cool. In contrast to that, um, when I lived in Massachusetts, I found Boston to be the most uh, racist place I have ever been. And there were literally places in Boston that black people did not go. Yeah, yeah there we, were neighborhoods that you could not go into. Yeah, and we, uh, yeah. we spent South, some time in some of them. South Southie, <laughs> Southie, exactly. Yeah. Oh boy, exactly. <laughs> and interestingly enough, you know, teaching at UMass Boston, I yeah. drove through Southie right, every right. day in order to get to work. Yes, um, and that was that was always an interesting experience. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say, um, I liked the quote from Buckminster Fuller. I am I am a big fan of his. Um, and I think that we do, it's, it's, again, it's very easy for people to say the present situation in whatever form sucks. Um, and it's easy to tear things down. It's much more difficult to build something new in its place. And for me, I... Uh, invariably connect racism with capitalism. And I really feel that we need to move significantly beyond the current capitalist model in which things are happening. I, I find it very interesting that the COVID uh, virus is happening now because it seems to me that it really highlights the kinds of things that Bernie was talking about, yeah. about everybody needing health care. Yeah. And, and during this virus, we have seen that there are people who need health care and who can't get it. You know, the president said months ago, everybody who needs a test can get one. And that is obviously still not true even to this day. Mm-hmm. And getting the insurance companies out of the way and and giving everybody access to health care it should be a right it should not be a privilege in the same way that education should be a right and not a privilege we should have free higher education and so i think if we move in those kinds of anti-capitalist directions i i really believe that that is the blueprint for how to construct a new society. And you can look at at all kinds of countries in Europe that have better healthcare systems than we have, even though we spend more. Um, Having um, accessible daycare for everybody who needs it and work production goes up when people have access to daycare. And why we as a country have not figured those kinds of things out, I do not understand. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I think um, that's an interesting ser- series of points in there. I mean, I, I'm um, you know, certainly one of those white people who's, who's, who's trying to catch up. I, I, I can certainly say that as a, a Gen X person. I, I think I grew up, I grew up in Massachusetts. Irish Catholic parents who came from those neighborhoods, um, and in, in probably, although not explicitly, using racist comments, um, they came from those environments where it, it seemed inevitable and almost the way Southerners probably felt about Jim Crow, that it was just, you know, the Irish were in uh, South Boston, Dorchester, West Roxbury, and Charlestown. Um, Black people were in Roxbury, and the Italians exactly. were in East Boston in the North exactly. End. Exactly. And that, and that's the way it was. And it, it's so interesting. I can remember um, going to Europe for the first time as a young man in the early '90s, and I was lucky enough to go to Prague right after the curtain fell. And I was doing a homestay in Prague, and so I, I had a day off where my homestay brother or whatever was he had to go to the university, and everybody was gone. And they gave me a map and said, you know, why don't you go? I said, sure. And I I looked at the map. And I said to him, I said, show me the neighborhoods where I shouldn't go. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, there are probably some dangerous neighborhoods. And he said, what are you talking about? He said, go wherever you want. And it was, 
I think the beginning of a realization that the the map that was given to me as a Bostonian person was insane, and it did not have to be that way. Um, but but my larger point as a person who's catching up, you know, I I didn't know, for example, that um, you know in the 1890s that um, you know there was a series of economic shocks. Uh, in the South, particularly to the agrarian sector. And there was a, a, a movement of the Southern populists who were really trying to build a, I guess what we call a multiracial coalition of, of, of African-Americans and poor white farmers. Um, and, and there was a, there was a clear sort of, there were interests, people saw interests. And so the, um, the right wing at the time were, were, were conservative Democrats. And, and that's, uh, they saw what was happening. These were uh, a very mu- small minority, the planter elite, and they um, they turned to the the dark arts of American politics, which is to use race, to use white supremacy, and to divide um, that potential coalition. And it it makes you wonder that if in 1890s in the Deep South there was potentially a a, a progressive biracial uh, movement that was, you know, looking for more economic equality, you, you, you wonder about the opportunity that was lost. Um, and I know that uh, Martin Luther King also was, I think, um, more and more talking about um, the common economic interests among white people and black people uh, towards, towards the end of his life, or I'm sure he was always aware of it. But um, yeah, so uh, and I, I've read a number of of uh, analysis that are talking about, you know, is there, there are also people in the streets who, in addition to protesting systematic racism, I think are 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 also seeing that that this is an opportunity to talk about um, the inequities of capitalism. Um, and, and again, I, I don't have answers to to a political strategy, but but all of that's going through my mind as well. So um, I agree with everything that you just said. And, um, you know, uh, it is true that there are more people at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale than at the top. And the people at the top know that. And if all poor people got together, they could take over the world. And the people on top know that. And so they use things like race as a way to keep people separated from each other. And on the topic of Martin Luther King, you know, it's interesting that when he was talking about civil rights and black people's rights, he was not quite deemed as being so threatening. And Mm. at the end end of his life, he was organizing the Poor People's March yeah. It wasn't a black people's march. It was a poor people's march. And he was talking about class and not primarily talking about race. Yeah. And I believe that that is when he became really, really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why he had to get taken out, because yeah. he was talking about class instead of talking about race. And yeah. that, of course, goes back to the um, to the Marxist idea about mm-hmm. the importance of talking about class. Mm. I, think, I think this is where perhaps we should all be also reading things like The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Absolutely. Yeah. Who has that yeah. perspective, right? It's not just a race thing. It's a it's a it's a class thing, like you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I want to pick up on a different thread just because um, it's a juicy thread. And um, and I like juice. Okay, yeah, um, and, and and professor, I I feel like we, we can Wait, have you back it, for hold it, hold it, hold yeah. It. Don't yeah. call me professor. Please. Okay, <laughs> call me Pancho. Okay, Pancho. <laughs> um, so you you started talking about about you know jazz and um, you know I had mentioned uh the the beats a little bit and. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, I, I think we did an episode uh, a year ago saying, you know, the topic was, are the beats still relevant? And, you know, we're not in academia. We don't have much access to to young people. 
Um, so we were mostly speaking about what we could intuit. We don't know directly, but um, well, I do. I have an 18 year old daughter and a 20 year old son. So yeah. I, I, I can tell you they're very much engaged and very much, uh, you know, in the spirit of things right now. They're, yeah. they're all, all up in arms, so to speak. Fantastic. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, one way to look at the beats, uh, you know, the proto hippies in the 50s um, were, were incredibly radical and progressive in questioning the society. I think certainly you could make criticisms. They, they, they were not so welcoming to women um, in terms of uh, African-American writers. I mean, I can think of Amiri Bakara, a.k.a. Leroy Jones. But I, again, I don't know how many black writers were brought into that coterie. It certainly was very progressive and, and radical in terms of embracing homosexuality and gay identity. But um, my, my larger point is how that group of, of radical literary folk were, were inspired by jazz in, in, in the bebop era, and particularly Jack Kerouac, who um, you know, would go to uh, jazz clubs, would go to uh, Harlem and soak up uh, the music and, and the, the spontaneity and the improvisation. Um, and so I'm, uh, I, this was, the beats were an incredible influence on the counterculture of the 1960s. And so I'm, I'm trying to connect dots of, you know, uh, the African-American experience, the, the wisdom, the spontaneity, the, the flexibility that was in jazz and how that was passed to the beats and then to the, the counterculture movement. And I, I'm wondering if just your thoughts, uh, Pancho, about some connections there. Ah, uh, complicated topic. Yeah. Um, yes, I have taught a class on the beats. And uh, in addition to doing all the obvious people, um, Ginsburg, Kerouac, Burroughs, Gary Snyder, et cetera, et cetera, I also made sure in the course that I did uh, some African-American beat writers. Mm. So uh, we did uh, Bob Kaufman and Ted Jones and, and Amiri Baraka. One of the things that's sort of ironic about um, the connection between the 50s and 60s, I mean, on the one hand, there does seem to be a natural morph from the beats into the hippies. But it's also true that um, you know, Kerouac did not want to be, in, his, in the later part of his life, Kerouac did not want to be associated at all with right. yep. hippies. Yes. Very right wing. He was. The topic of <laughs> Vietnam. Yep. Um, so that's sort of weird. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, um, uh, Kerouac definitely was into jazz. Um, and also, uh, Allen Ginsberg has said on more than one occasion that when he was writing Howl, he was totally informed in terms of rhythm by listening to Lester Young, nice. um, and especially his song, Lester Leaps In. Mm. And so there's definitely a connection between the beats and jazz mm. and the beats and black culture in general. Yeah. Uh, and certainly the beats continue to inspire uh, lots of young people. And I think the beats, interestingly enough, I think the beats also serve as a way to help introduce young people into appreciating jazz. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've also, um, during recent days, thought a lot about, uh, you know, Roman, I remember in the 70s and 80s, William Burroughs in particular was, was always like, you know, the United States is a police state don't, you know, don't have any quibbles about that. And I, and I can remember uh, as a teenager uh, liking that comment just because it, it seemed to rile up people, but I don't know if I truly believed it, but I, but I think, you know, he burrows in a weird way, always had somewhat of a strange pulse for this country. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and 
the, the reason why I think we didn't really see it is because we were white kids in white suburbia. Yeah. Rob. yeah. We were living yeah. just north of Boston. Yep. We had no 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 context for which to from which to sort of make, put that into some sort of perspective. And I, only now, only in the past couple of decades, really, have we kind of become aware of this. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, you know, I mean, the education yeah, I, system has failed us to 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 give us those tools, perspectives They totally failed. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that we we did grow up in a, a primarily Jewish community. And I think so in that respect, we did have a slight, slightly non mainstream view of the society. But your your point is well taken. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to listen to WGBH late at night uh, to their jazz, you know, program. Exactly, exactly. You know, and I would fall asleep to that and wake up to that sometimes because, you know. <laughs> so, but but that was something that was very different from my surroundings. My surroundings were not like that, you know. Yeah. Um, I de developed, you know, I found Thelonious Monk and I was, I, I just couldn't believe that, that, that it wasn't being discussed or wasn't being played anymore around me. And I had to go to a specialty little station to, to find this kind of music. It was bizarre. It's, that's really unfortunate. And it's still the case that yeah. in terms of um, record and CD sales, jazz is like two or three percent. Um, people are not listening. No. And I don't understand why. The other thing I want to say was, um, you know, as a, as a black person living in America, every time I leave my house, I feel as though I am putting on this suit of armor mm -hmm. because I do not know what is going to happen to me. Um, I do not know if I'm going to come home alive. Uh, I do not know if I'm going to get pulled over by the police on some for some ridiculous reason. Mm. And it, um, you know, it has a major effect on how you live your life mm. in, in an everyday way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been trying to, my, my, one of my siblings uh, is very conservative and he just doesn't get it. And how, how sad for you. No, yeah, it really is sad because, because yeah. I, I, I find it um, in, pretty much impossible to speak with them without, you know, the modern world sort of interfering. And then, and then we start arguing and it's just, it's horrible. It really is horrible. Um, but I, I guess, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's like some of the best things, I mean, really the best things for me about American culture really came from the African-American community. I mean, that's the, the, the most vital, the most interesting aspects of this culture. Are, are coming from that from that area. So I, I, I just don't understand why America seems to be putting the blinders on and saying, no, no, it's all just, you know, good old the USA. Well, it's not really. There's so much, so much that's being pushed under the carpet. And once in a while we have these eruptions and, and stuff under the carpet comes out. But I, I'm worried, like I, like I think a lot of people are, that this is just yet another eruption and then things will kind of smooth over or or things will just going to go back to quote unquote regular normal, even though this, you know, there's really no normal anymore. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit hopeful because this does feel like a different cultural moment from previous moments similar to this one, just because we have so many confluent factors like the the pandemic, uh, you know, and and the world. The fact the world is connected now. It is a global village. I mean, it's a stupid phrase, but it's so true. We are all. We're just all connected, but I, I'm just I worried that, that this this is gonna go away, and that we're gonna get back to back to you know make money, forget about lives, make money, forget <laughs> about lives. Yeah. So I, one of the things I would say is that um, Ralph Ellison wrote this very interesting article towards the end of his life that was called uh, "What What America Would Be Like Without Blacks." And the basic answer is America would be nothing because the basis of all of American culture comes from African-American culture. Yeah, 100% and, agree. Yeah. And, and people need to recognize that. You know, I, I, even though it wasn't totally successful, I do find interesting what South Africa attempted to do with their reconciliation commissions. And and people um, stepping up and admitting 
the horrible things that they did during apartheid. And I think that the United States needs to do that in some form. And until that happens, we are never going to be at the place where all of us want to be yeah. and need to be. Yep. No, it's really, it's really interesting that we have these documents that are the basis of American democracy, the Constitution, Declaration, Bill of Rights. And they say all these great things about everybody being created equal. But the people who wrote those words own slaves. And um, when are we going to deal with that basic contradiction in American society? When is America going to live up to those words and those documents. Now, we did have an interesting moment during Reconstruction, after the Civil War was over, uh, when black people got to run for office, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to me that was the only moment in American history, lasted for 10 or 11 years, that was the only moment in American history when America really made an attempt to live up to what it said it believed in. And then it was crushed. And we went back to the way things had been beforehand. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, for, for readers who, who want to uh, follow a bit, uh, there, there's an amazing book that, that documents that. It's called The Strange Career of, of Jim Crow uh, by a historian named C. Van Woodward. C. Van Woodward, yes. It's yeah. a very good book. Yeah, and so that, that really... Um, it's it's crushing to see to see how see what the possibilities were and that I, I think most of us had this impression that, you know, Jim Crow started, you know, day one, uh, you know, at Appomattox, you know, the, the cell said, well, we, we 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 lost the war, but we're going to retain our, you know, rigid system uh, of control. And, and there was a, a brief period. It, it really makes you kind of. Um, yeah. And, and I suspect more and more people during this this period, uh, hopefully white Americans will begin to to understand more about the, the Civil War didn't just end. There was this fluid period, one might say. Well, I think I think the fluidity, the fluid period is, is still upon us. I mean, we're, 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 it didn't end up until yeah. now. It's still I mean, still, I think I think the. The danger of looking at history is to sort of categorize it in some sort of periods, yeah. you know, from this year to that year, there was a civil war, and then the, this year to that was Jim Crow. But it doesn't work that way. It really doesn't work that way. It's all these all these loose ends are still with us. That That's why that's why I'm talking about, you know, sweeping under the carpet. It's still there because some white folks can't see it. It's still there. And and once in a while we have these horrible events that are showing us that it's still there. Exactly. You know, um, I am I, happy that they are taking down the monuments in the South and oh, they are. And uh, I was happy to see the symbolic uh, uh, moment by NASCAR when it said it's not going to allow Confederate flags anymore. But again, it's like it took you this long to figure out that the Confederate flag is a symbol of racism. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and 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 thousands, hundreds of thousands of people protesting on the streets of all of all stripes. Just exactly for for days, for weeks on end for this and to actually hear, start. And moving. you hear this bullshit about the the Confederate flag is really about Southern heritage. Oh come on! Well, you know what does that mean? It's like yeah. when people say the Civil War was fought over states, they put a period there. Well, it's actually states' rights to continue the institution of slavery. Yeah, yeah. there's no question about that. It's, it's again, it's whitewashed. No, no, exactly. no pun intended there. Exactly. You know, it's it's uh, it's um, it's just being it being disingenuous at the most basic basic level, and and you can only do that to a certain extent. As, as a people, as, as human beings, before both psychologically and socially, it becomes unbearable. And I think I'm hoping that it becomes so unbearable for, for some 
folks who are resisting that they will uh, affect a change. It has to become unbearable. You know, you can't just keep sweeping, sweeping it under the rug and ignoring it because it's there in your subconscious. It's there. It's going to give you nightmares. It's going to give you bad feelings. It's just it's you can't as a people. You have to acknowledge it. And I agree with you as far as you know, this half African model, as imperfect as it was, we need something that's called truth and reconcil reconciliation. We need something that's that's labeled that so that people people can see that it's 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 affecting some sort of a real change or at least a real reflection of the history because the history again has been you know, our heritage our southern heritage well what is that heritage well it's 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 enslaving people come on that's that's the truth that's the reality there's no opinion this is your opinion this is my opinion i don't think that, i mean it just does not work that way and if you do repress it you repress it at your own cost this is this is not somebody else's cost this is our own cost as a country and as a people. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a no-brainer, right? But it's, why? I uh, totally, totally to agree. And I think another thing is um, it's easy for white people in certain parts of the country, it is easy for white people to live their lives and very rarely have to come into direct contact with black people. Mm -hmm. And obviously for black people, that is virtually never the case. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting the difference between the North and the South mm. that, you know, in the South, despite all the horrors and racism and slavery and the Civil War, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it is also true that in the South, white people had more contact with black people than white people in the North have with black people. Yep. Yeah, I, I experienced that personally. Um, as we talked about, I grew up in the Boston area and was, I guess, just completely used to this um, de facto segregation, not not de jure, but de facto. And um, in the late 90s, my father retired to uh, Florida, but he retired to the, the quote unquote southern part of Florida in the north near Gainesville because there was a a veterans hospital there and he was a veteran he wanted to be close to that he had some health issues and so um he lived outside of gainesville gainesville is a university town um but i spent a lot of time there even uh worked there and lived with him briefly and and i was struck by that poncho how um i was you know very aware of the south and its reputation but i also for the first time in my life i worked with black people I came in to contact them casually uh, at, at grocery stores, you know, casual conversations. And so it was very interesting for me as a, particularly in Boston, there was a real arrogance um, because there had been, you know, abolitionists going way back that, you know, we are, you know, we're Northern people, we're more enlightened. So I, I found uh, your observation uh, to be absolutely true. Um, there was a, a social proximity um, despite all the, you know, the shortcomings that still existed. Yeah. And as I said earlier, you know, when I, when I moved to Massachusetts, I was told black people don't go here, black people yep. don't go here, black people don't go here. Yep. And, uh, you know, that was something you had to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been wanting to, um, put together an essay uh, to think think about the busing crisis in Boston uh, in light of today and, and just spend some time. And I've been wanting to write about that for some time because of my own family's connection to some of those Irish neighborhoods in particular. And um, listening to the way my family talked about um, about that. So I think there's a there's a lot to unpack um, that's relevant today. So hopefully I'll I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll that's a that. that's a really interesting story. And yeah, it is really interesting period of time in Boston. Yeah. So more yeah. needs to be written about it. Yeah, I, I, I for sure. Um, so you know, we we've kind of come to our 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 usual sort of time here. Um, I I feel like we could talk for hours. Um, oh yes, we could. Yeah, and but you know, I are there other loose threads or, or ideas that, that we should leave people thinking about um, that we didn't get to talk to? Roman, Pancho? Well, I just want to say quickly before Pancho jumps in, I want Pancho to have the last word, that, that I am hopeful 
from just uh, seeing my kids, the ne the next generation. Um, they are uh, just completely comfortable with this new, uh, not new, I should say, but you know, this is their world and they're completely comfortable in it as it is. They're very uncomfortable with some of the negative uh, aspects of the society as they've been showing up lately. Uh, and they're uncomfortable to the point where they're galvanized to vote. Um, they don't understand racism because they just, they're, they're, they haven't been brought up that way, you know? Um, uh, so I'm hopeful seeing, you know, the 18 to 23 year olds that I have, um, I think perhaps it's it's I think it's happened before that we were hopeful about the next generation. But just seeing from my own kids, from my own personal experience, I am hopeful. Uh, and I think that the connection to capitalism and the fact that it's the systemic inequality that's really at, at, at sort of the, the base of it all. Uh, I think that's also seeming to to be changing at least the perceptions of, of capitalism as the only really workable system is changing. Uh, and it's driven by the young generation. I don't know if you guys are aware of, of the Trump rally that was uh, basically uh, 86 by the, you know, subverted by teens, the teens and K-pop stars who, uh, what, I guess they reserved all these tickets and didn't show up. And so then nobody else. Could oh, is that so? Uh, yeah, 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 that was the really latest cool. story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. It was very cool. It was basically a rebellion by the teens of this country. Huh. And we're talking about uh, thousands upon thousands of teens doing this. And so these guys are going to be gals and guys are going to be voters next, you know, in the next election. And they're going to be voters for many years to come. And they're going to be setting the agenda for this country. So I am hopeful, a little skeptical, obviously, because we have, we've, we've had these eruptions and they've, they've been sort of suppressed again, one way or another. Um, but I am hoping that we're moving in the right direction. So I would say, um, as a college professor, I could not do my job unless I had optimism. Mm. I really believe that I can have a positive effect on my students. And teaching at an elite institution like Reed, 30 years from now, my students are going to be the people who rule the world. And I want them, I would rather have them influenced by me than have them influenced by some asshole. Mm -hmm. and I, am, I am constantly in the classroom talking about the evils of capitalism. My students make fun of me <laughs> uh, in the sense that if I don't mention capitalism at least once in every single class, then something is wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so I think, you know, so I, I really do believe that um, younger people um, have more of an insight than their elders did when they were their age. And I really do want to believe that people can go out there and do good things. I, I define what I do as giving students a certain set of tools so that they can take those tools out into the world when they graduate and use those tools to help make the world a better place. And so if I, if I did not believe that I could do that, I would have to decide to retire. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, there's actually, um, a, a really nice, um, profile of, of uh, online uh, from Reed College of, of kind of your approach to, to teaching, which um, uh, I, I think is really cool and, and sort of illustrates what, what you're saying. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not sure I, I, I'm particularly optimistic, um, but I'm, I'm enriched by this discussion. And um, I think I have, I think there are some limits to what conversations can do, but I still want to keep having them <laughs> um, because I find some solace there, speak, speaking of solace. And um, I'm going to continue to think about um, what books can do for us during times like this. I, I, this is an open question of mine. It's been a theme through a lot of these podcasts. Um, what can literature do? And I, and I appreciate 
Pancho, your perspective in, in giving us some ideas about um, the audience uh, for for these books, for African-American uh, novels and, and poetry. Um, I, I came across a quote from uh, Marcel Proust to kind of, for, for a second, jump outside the context of the U.S., and as a 13-year-old, I mean, talk about a precocious child, he came up with, with this um, definition of literature, which, which I find really interesting. He said, the study of literature enables us to scorn death. It raises us above earthly concerns by speaking to us of the things of the spirit. It refines all our feelings. And that reasoned, almost philosophical courage is much finer than physical courage or the boldness of the senses. For it is in reality the courage of the spirit. So that's a 13-year-old for you. Um, clearly, there's some good things in store for Mr. Proust. Um, uh, but definitely. I, not, not too many 13-year-olds <laughs> would have that degree of insight. Yeah. No, it's incredible. Incredible. And, and I guess, um, you know, there's no way to sum up uh, this great conversation and the challenges we're talking about. But courage. I, 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 courage in many, many forms. And, and a lot of that's going to be um, looking within our own hearts, and I mean white people. I think um, uh, the African-American essayist and writer uh, Roxane Gay, um, she's been, she has a column in the New York Times on a regular basis and speaks uh, quite regularly. And, and w the one message I've got from her is racism is white people's problem. Don't look for me to, to solve that for you. And I, and I think that's a, um, I think that's a radical idea, even for, for, for white people who are, who recognize, um, the, the, the sin of the country. And, and so that's something I think that people need to, to reckon, reckon with in their own hearts is, um, uh, and, you know, and perhaps it's my Catholic background of, uh, self-examination and examination of conscience. Um, you know, that, that's the hard part, um, but the agonbite, the agonbite or agent bite of inwit, as Joyce said. Yes, calls. yes, as Joyce yes. said, exactly. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, say that again. I, I missed that. I, I'm not sure how to pronounce the first word. Is agent bite or agonbite? Ag agonbite of inwit. That, that's how you pronounce it. That's it. That's a Joyce uh, famous jo Joyce quote that's sort of you know probing your conscience. Yeah. Uh, that's what he meant. And by the way, you used the word courage, Rob, right? Yeah. And that comes from uh, from the French for heart. Courage. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So and, um, and I and I think um, Roxanne Gay's point is totally correct that it is really up to white people to take on the burden of ending the racial problems that we have because after all, white people are the people who created the problem in the first place and and are perpetuating it and are living from its privileges. Absolutely. And so they have to get it together. Yep. And, and, and so that's, that's the, 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 the quiet, personal, domestic piece um, that will, I, I think, hopefully feed and inform, you know, what we see in the Congress, in the streets, in the courts, um, et cetera. So, um, well, I will also say yeah. I am. I am the product of 12 years of Catholic education. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and so... Um, You've been immunized. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it it really did make you um, engage in that inward quest. Yeah. And, and really examining how you were thinking about things, how you were dealing with things, how you were doing things. Yeah. And I, I continue, even though I'm not religious at all, um, I continue to be thankful for the educational experience I had. Yeah. You know, Much like well, Joyce. Joyce benefited a lot from the Jesuit education that he got. But, you I, know, went, I went to a Jesuit high school. There you go. <laughs> but, you know, this, I mean, this is not, this is not an exclusive sort of realm of, of, of Christianity. I mean, we're talking about Socrates here. The unexamined life is not worth living. living. He, he exhorted people, forget about philosophy. It would a big P. There's no such thing. It really is just to examine what you assume to be true. If you continually do that, you can be a decent human being. I if happen to continuously give a do it. Watch your life. Socrates at Reed. I'm sorry. Say it again. I give a lecture on Socrates at Reed every year. 
Oh, yeah, wow. I mean, right. That's that's really the the premise, the basis of any kind of life that's worth living. You have to examine it. You have to examine exactly. your presuppositions, stuff that Absolutely. you're not quite aware that you're assuming is true. You have to keep digging, and that's the only really way to have a meaningful life. So, if you continue to live without doing that, then you're not having a meaningful life. And not only that, you're, especially if you're a white American, you're kind of basically stepping on other people's right to do that. Exactly. I liked. I I very much liked you, that you used the word digging, because that reminds me of my favorite poem by Langston Hughes, which is called "Motto." I play it cool and dig all jive. That's the reason I stay alive. My motto, as I live and learn, is dig and be dug in return. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And, you know, Thelonious Monk has this famous, well, famous, he's got this quote, you've got to dig it to dig it. You dig? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Love it. The world would be so much better if everybody started listening to Thelonious. Oh, oh, I tell you. Oh, oh and if you have not read it, you should read uh, Robin Kelly's biography of Thelonious. It is tremendous. Pancho, there was a, you, as soon as it was published, I was all over it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I brought him to read as soon as it was published. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. wow. That's wonderful. Well, um, this has been uh, an amazing conversation and um, felt really privileged uh, to have uh, Pancho, Dr. Pancho Savory here with us. Uh, again, he's a professor of English and Humanities at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Um, and so uh, with that, I, I will conclude and, and remind folks um, that you can follow us on uh, at Feel Bookish on Twitter. And I think I speak for Roman and Heston, uh, Pancho, when I, when I say um, you uh, have an open door here. Um, uh, to come back and talk about uh, whatever's on your mind. I, I know that I, I would hope that we could induce you back at some point, maybe to talk about uh, uh, censorship and literature, particularly uh, Huck Finn, which I know is, is something that you've uh, lectured I, I on. I and go on at length on that topic. Yeah. So, so, so perhaps uh, that could be a, a future oh, conversation. Yeah, we, we, should really have a, we should really have a censorship episode, Rob. Absolutely. Yeah. Should have yeah. Cool, I'm so, up for it. Awesome. Well, it's um, been really, really fun. I, thank you so much for joining us. Really, thank you. Really I really, fun. I really enjoyed this a lot. Yep. So uh, with that, we'll say uh, thank you guys and uh, thank you, Heston, for your work. And uh, we'll see you folks next time. Bye now. Bye.